For many of us, the place we grew up is deeply familiar, almost on a cellular level. We know the streets, the buildings, the neighbors. But what if that gradually started to shift? What if one day you turned down a street to find it submerged underwater, only the tops of dead trees visible? For some fishermen in coastal Louisiana, that is not just a nightmare scenario. Our lives will never be the same. We will never be the same. That was your way of life. That was your life. So how can your life ever be the same? It won't. It can't be. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. This week marks the fifth anniversary of the end of the BP oil spill. On July 15, 2010, the well that had been spilling millions of gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico was capped after 87 days. It was the largest spill in the nation's history, and it had a devastating and still ongoing impact on Gulf Coast fisheries. But the oil spill isn't the only thing they're up against in Louisiana. The land here is disappearing. Producer Lane Kaplan-Levinson spent some time with a fisherman and his family who are holding on to life on the coast as long as they can. Tony Kateris and his wife Kathy are looking for a graveyard where Kathy's ancestors are buried. And to do that, they need a boat. Tony's nephew, little Greg, lent him his oyster patrol boat for the morning. Tony's sister Julie and her boyfriend Carl are also on board. Years ago, the group wouldn't have needed a boat for this trip. You know what an upright graveyard is at on Bayalutra? Fueling up at the marina, the guy manning the gas pump reminds us to watch out for real-life swamp beasts like poisonous water moccasin snakes and feral hogs. Oh yeah, we, we brought the gun. Watch the hogs too. All right, I'll see you the way back. Carl makes sure the handgun's on deck, and then Tony starts up the motor. This is a family affair, bickering and all. Julie and Kathy, sisters-in-law, are trying to apply lipstick take selfies and not fall overboard all at once. Carl is shirtless, smoking a cigar, and eating a plate of pulled pork. It's 8 a.m. I can't handle all the screaming. You can't handle all the screaming? I can't handle the screaming. I gotta stop screaming. Hang on. Hey. In a boat. You got women. Yeah, in a boat. No, I got babies. Hey. Tony's behind the wheel, shielded from the sun in a backwards baseball cap and Oakley sunglasses. Everyone is wearing the same white, knee-high shrimp boots over their pants. Some of this crew has been messing with each other on a boat since they were teenagers. And this place looked totally different back then. There used to be a whole city here. The road used to come all the way to here. Tony points to an area of open water. Remnants of what was once a paved road are visible about 100 yards away. This is the ever-widening edge of Bayou La Lutra near Shell Beach, a part of St. Bernard Parish often referred to as the Parish, about an hour east and a bit south from New Orleans. It's summertime and the land is lush and green, but saltwater intrusion is killing off the live oaks that have lined the waterways for hundreds of years. Saltwater intrusion is pretty much what it sounds like when saltwater enters an area of freshwater like a lake. It's bad news for the ecosystem because the saltwater kills the freshwater plant life and that marshland dies. This is one of the leading causes of the land loss crisis in Louisiana. The most common estimate, and at this point, meme, is that the southeastern part of the state is losing a football-sized chunk of land every hour. Looking out from Tony's boat, 
There are now entire rows of naked, dead trees, many of which have fallen and lay helpless, sticking out of the water like petrified corpses. It's striking and terrifying. Where the grave at? The gravesite at? Yeah, Captain Great. There isn't much boat traffic out on the water, but whomever we pass, Tony knows on a first name basis. That's a crab, or just James, that's James Terry. See, he's fished the channel all his life. These familiar faces all know the graveyard Tony's looking for, called the All Right or All Bright graveyard, depending on who you ask. But the landmarks they're using to guide him in the right direction are becoming less and less recognizable. That's what I'm looking for, that ridge oak tree. That may be it. I wish he was with me because it's really hard to go by description when there's nothing left. This body was only maybe 50 feet wide, and now it looks like it be 150 feet wide. That oak tree's dead. That was alive last year, too. See the branches hit it? It's dead. Seeing how quickly the land is going, the Kateras clan feels pressed to cross off what's remaining on their coastal bucket list. They've spent their lives down in Shell Beach, but have never found the site where Kathy's ancestors used to live and are still buried. And it feels like now or never to make this visit happen. Okay, I believe we're here. We're right past the <laughs> Finally, Tony spots the large palmetto plant that he was told to look out for. We step out onto an open pasture of knee-high grass, the land where Kathy's family lived for generations. In the mid-20th century, the Army Corps of Engineers built the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, the Mr. Go, a 76-mile canal. It cut straight through St. Bernard Parish to the Gulf of Mexico and was built as a way to expedite shipping. The wetlands Kathy's family lived on were bought out and the homes were demoed in the 1960s. For 44 years, the Mr. Go let cargo ships pass through. But then the channel was closed in 2009, after the Corps of Engineers was blamed for causing that saltwater intrusion I mentioned, as well as other major environmental damages. So much land and culture was lost due to the life and death of Mr. Go, but not these burial grounds. Joe, we found it! Oh, God. Kathy had stayed behind on the boat. She was too scared of the poisonous snakes and wild hogs that do their fair share of eating up the marshland, too. But when she hears Tony's whistle, she gingerly walks through the brush to see what he found. Look at the pottery. This is the pottery, so I know this is what it was at. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. We're on the same ground that my ancestors were on. Tony's on his hands and knees in about a foot of water, uncovering pieces of clay bowls and bricks as if he's on an archaeological dig. And in a way, he is. These are relics left behind by Kathy's family, who lived here until the day they were bought out by the Army Corps. He's handing these broken artifacts to his wife, who's stuffing them in her pockets like candy. The desperation to hold on to a piece of this heritage is palpable, and the waves lapping up against the boat's edge sound almost like a ticking clock. But it didn't always feel like a race against time to preserve this place. When Tony was a kid, living off the water was all there ever was and all he thought there ever would be. I was introduced in a fishing business at six to seven years old, particularly shrimp. And the name of the boat was Night and Day, and that's where we worked, night and day. My stepdad didn't turn the motor off. Tony mentioned his stepdad. His birth dad died when Tony was three months old. He was a gasoline truck driver and got killed in a crash. Growing up not knowing his dad, Tony became obsessed with learning his family history. And our ancestries go way back in the fishing business. And on my mother's side, I got my ninth great grandfather was John L. Lathrop. He came here in 1633. 
from England and settled in Massachusetts. He takes out a folder of printed documents from Ancestry.com. A mother's, mother's family, my great-grandfather, Chief Lightfoot of the Choctaw tribe, and we traced him, the, the genealogy back to 1612 with him. Yes, about American as it gets. And about as St. Bernard Parish as it gets. Tony and Kathy are basically Bayou royalty. We met at a party that my cousin was having, and I just asked him if he wanted an olive, and he ate an olive that he really hated. <laughs> and we've been together ever since. Unbelievable, I know, over an olive. <laughs> this April 18th was 40 years. It's not surprising they met over an olive. Being from Southeast Louisiana, you can only go so long talking about anything before talking about food. Yeah, we're ready to eat. Gumbo's ready, rice is ready. On a Sunday afternoon, Tony, Kathy, and their younger son, Justin, sit around the kitchen table ready to dig into lunch. Tony advises me on the best way to enjoy the gumbo, which is packed with chicken, andouille sausage, shrimp, and oysters. Tony says, add potato salad. You gotta try a little bit of potato salad on the side of your gumbo in the same bowl. <laughs> it's real. Kathy's grandmother was a great cook who prepared meals on her husband's boat for all the fishermen on board. But Kathy makes her mother-in-law's gumbo. Because I fell in love with his mother, how she cooked. And I had to make that gumbo. Tony's son, Justin, jumps in. We fight over who's going to cook. We saw, I start cooking. He comes in and starts fighting with me over the cooking. She comes in and starts arguing over cooking. But it's, it's a good thing because it's like we all want to make that gumbo perfect. You know, we want to make all, it so good. But the people in St. Bernard loved food. Food was a, a celebration. Every time you cooked, it was a thing. Nobody left the kitchen. That was part of the entertainment. That's what you did. That's the part of the culture down there. Notice how Justin said down there as opposed to down here. Just make note of that. I remember it was at elementary school that they asked what was your happiest moments. And I said our happiest moments was living on a boat because on the summertime, we would go on a boat as a family. But you know, there was no TV. It was, we, our entertainment was what we were going to cook together as a family or have as, as food, and we ate good on a boat. Truly, it was like I realized that that was one of the, the greatest moments that you could have. And that's not a life that a lot of people could understand, because you, you can't see land for as far as you can look. But yet, as a family, you were there every day together. The Kateras family doesn't live in St. Bernard anymore. A lot of people used to live in St. Bernard. But over the past few decades, there's been an exodus. Kathy remembers preparing herself to tell her longtime neighbor that they were leaving the parish. She said, oh, Kathy, I gotta tell you something. I said, oh, I gotta tell you something too, but I don't wanna tell you. She said, well, you go first. I said, I'm moving. She said, we are too. She said, we're moving to Slidell. I said, me too. She said, where are you moving? I said, Lakeshore. She said, me too. Which street? I said, Sunset. Me too. <laughs> Slidell is on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain. New Orleans and the coastal communities down the bayou are on the south shore. Though it's only about 50 miles away, Slidell is different from St. Bernard. Think fewer bait shops sprinkled along narrow winding roads and more stereotypical suburban sprawl, chain stores, and carports. The Kateras family still lives on the water. Their backyard looks out onto the lake. But it's not the same, says Kathy. St. Bernard was such a tight-knit community that you just can't adjust anyplace else. Everyone knew everyone. Wherever you went, someone knew you and was going to talk to you while you were there. <laughs> so why'd they move? 
Tony blames the controversial coastal restoration technique of freshwater diversions. To understand that, you need a little background on what people think is causing coastal land loss here. It's not just the Mr. Go Canal. As more towns were built along the Mississippi River, the Army Corps of Engineers built a system of levees to prevent those communities from being flooded. But it was the natural floods that dispersed the soil and helped build up marshland. Controlling the flooding means cutting off the sediment flow, which means less and less marsh. One of the potential solutions that the Corps have come up with to solve that is freshwater diversions, i.e. intentional floods. Freshwater is channeled from a nearby river into the wetlands to fight the effects of saltwater intrusion and jumpstart the growth of new marsh. Freshwater diversions are a major part of the state's plan to deal with the disappearing coastline. But Tony and other fishermen think this infusion of freshwater is killing the seafood crabs, shrimp, and oysters that live in the wetlands and need a certain salinity level to survive. This is why some land conservationists and fishermen disagree about how to restore the coast. Many fishermen vote for the dredging technique, where sediment from the floor of the Mississippi River is gathered and transported to the coastline to build up land. Dredge, don't divert, save the marsh and the seafood is a common slogan you see on bumper stickers on the back of pickup trucks and signs that plaster the walls of bait shops throughout St. Bernard Parish. It sums up the polarizing dilemma of the Save the Wetlands campaign. Tony knows intimately the negative impacts the diversions can have on seafood. In 1990, they opened the, the Carnarvon diversion, the freshwater diversion from the Mississippi River. It killed all the oyster land that I was working. It killed all the oysters. This is the beginning of what Tony describes as losing everything. 25 years ago, after losing his oyster beds, Tony transitioned from catching seafood to buying and shipping it across the country. He ran this business from his dock in the town of Hopedale in St. Bernard for 15 years and ended up doing well for himself. But he started seeing the parish change. He saw fishermen struggling, and he worried about bigger and worse storms. So in August 2005, Tony and Kathy moved to the North Shore, living farther from the rest of their family and friends than ever before, 45 minutes away. But two days after they moved, Hurricane Katrina hit. The new house got four inches of water, and the family couldn't officially move in until Christmas of that year. But the main concern was Tony's business, still down in the Hopedale area of St. Bernard. Katrina took everything, took all the conveyors, all the, the freezers, the ice makers, everything. Even tractor trailer trucks, every pile was going. There was nothing, not one single nail left. And I was just tired of fighting. Tony's son Justin says he'd never seen his dad tired, period. It changed dad, it changed them all. They, nobody, nobody knew where to start. What nail do you nail in first? What board do you bring back first? It's so overwhelming. St. Bernard Parish got hit bad. When the levees breached, the gulf flooded into the nearby Lake Bourne. Almost everyone lost their homes. Most had never lived anywhere else or with anyone else. And suddenly, everyone was split up across the country. Neighborhoods shrank, schools closed, and homes and boats alike were left behind to sink into the bayou. The sudden and drastic uprooting of the remaining St. Bernard community caused psychological effects for everyone connected to the place. And the impacts continue to reverberate, like mental aftershocks. I can sit at this table and I can speak for myself, and I know my son, my wife, my other son, and everybody I know still never adjusted to this thing. We'll never will adjust to this thing. And I see something different, too, that there's post-traumatic stress syndrome with a lot of people. 
people's people that I've known all my life that have been so confident and comfortable in their life and their own skin all have nerve problems now. When your life is ripped apart like that, that fast, it's never going to be the same. Justin hasn't stepped foot in Hopedale since the storm. I don't want to go down now. I've not been one time since Katrina. I, I want to remember that part of life the way it was. Hopedale to me was a place where I was a kid and I was able to run around and be free. But I don't want to see it that way now. But Tony kept going back. Working with his older son on the dock, they brought back the family seafood business in 2007. And then, in April of 2010, as people were finally getting back on their feet, came the BP oil spill. It could turn out to be the worst environmental disaster in more than 20 years. Thousands of gallons of crude oil are oozing into the Louisiana coastal waters. St. Bernard was wiped out all over again. Fishermen or not, you felt it. When a seafood commercial fisherman industry started to die, there was nobody buying furniture at the furniture stores because people didn't know where they were going to get the money. There was less real estate stuff going on. I mean, everything slows up. Coming up, the impact these losses have had on St. Bernard Parish and on Tony's business and what he's doing about it. That's ahead. And there's the donor music. So it's July, and where I am here in Louisiana, the weather is, well, hot doesn't really describe it, <laughs> sweaty as hell. <laughs> Nothing soothes the summer heat like a cool drink. But what should I have? And what will my choice say about me? Punch knows. What's punch? Well, it's a drink, of course. But it's also an online magazine. What the Southern Foodways Alliance is to food, punch is to drink. Through narrative journalism and gorgeous photography, Punch uses drinks as a lens to understand people and places, and also broader ideas like authenticity, tradition, and community. And in addition to all those stories, they also host an editor-tested cocktail recipe library. So if you want to make yourself a cocktail, perhaps you should check Punch out. You can find them online at punchdrink.com. Oh, and this month, they're featuring an article from our sibling gravy print journal on, you guessed it, cocktails. Now, back to Lane Kaplan-Levinson in St. Bernard Parish, Louisiana. Now that it's five years since the BP oil spill was capped, Tony brought me to his dock in Hopedale to see what it's like down there now. Lane, good morning, Tom. What you need tonight? While we filling up. We walked into Campos Marina the bait shop and fuel station that has a water and land entrance depending on which side you're coming from. It opened in 1903, and Frank Campo has basically been running the place since. My grandpa started it. My daddy took it over from him. My dad passed away in 2008, and he made me a promise that I would keep it going. So, so here I am. If anyone has a close-up look at what's going on in St. Bernard Parish, it's Frank. He wears a white V-neck undershirt and gold chain weighing down an impressive amount of chest hair. He sits at a desk that takes up half the room, which is a trailer that sits on the dock looking out onto the bayou. He exchanges words with every fisherman who goes out each day. He knows who's making it work and who isn't. He knows who's moved on, who's given up, and who's still fighting. What's going to happen to the industry? It's going to dry up like a California raisin. It's headed for an iceberg. It's going to crash. That's all there is to it. And like anyone who lived through it, it doesn't take long for Frank to go into the before and after the storm comparison. We had plenty, plenty of families down here. But then Katrina came along and poof, blew everybody out the water. Nobody wants to rebuild here. Everything you see here is just about sports. It's all camps. 
Frank is talking about recreational fishing camps. Instead of families occupying these homes, which perch on stilts 10 to 15 feet off the ground, groups now rent them out for a week at a time. They're vacation homes. At one time, you could go up to buy up the road, and I knew I knew whoever, everybody that was in the house, how many people lived there. Now it's all camps. I don't know nothing. I feel like a dummy when I ride up the road. I don't know who's where and what. Really, you know, it's, it's that's how changed it is. No, there's only about maybe a dozen people living here that's residents. It's going down. Lots of people who tried to hold on after Katrina gave up after BP. BP didn't, didn't uh, destroy the land here so much. What it did was it killed the fisheries, it killed the crabbing industry, and it killed the shrimping. As a matter of fact, it's worse now than it ever was. How uh, much seafood do you think went through it here that was going to Lake Pontchartrain? Man, I don't know. A gazillion pounds? Gazillion. A shrimp, right. fish, yeah. and... Like I tell you, between fish, shrimp, and crabs, maybe a gazillion pounds is light. And now? Now, nothing. Tony was distributing those gazillion pounds of blue crab to restaurants across the country, Baltimore, California, and New Orleans. Right after the spill, his catch seemed okay. But a few years in, his traps were coming up empty, and he lost a lot of customers due to lack of supply. He hasn't gotten those customers back. Losing customers isn't easy for these fishermen, but it's tough for the guys on the other end, too. Tony sold crabs up north to Jerry Harris for years. Well, Tony was one of my major crab shippers, and he's a very honest man. <laughs> I really like that family. That's Jerry, who owns Harris Crab House in Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah, Tony used to ship me, I don't know, high as 70 boxes of crabs a day. So, I mean, I don't nowhere near buy that many now. Before BP, 90% of the crabs Jerry bought for his 400-seat restaurant came from Louisiana. Now he's lucky to get a third of that from the state because guys like Tony aren't pulling up what they used to. And that's because the crabs just aren't there, which is rough for the fishermen and for the guy who runs a restaurant called Harris Crab House. Jerry's business is having a full-blown identity crisis. He wishes his place was called Harris Fish House or Harris Seafood House, anything but Harris Crab House. Well, then I could serve, you know, it wouldn't necessarily say that I got crabs. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's, when a customer walks into the restaurant, oh, you don't have no crabs today? Well, you know what I mean? Well, you're Harris Crab House. It's, it's hard to tell these people I don't have crabs. So you're feeling that? Oh, yes, ma'am. We feel it, sure. I mean, my land, we're doing steaks now. We never did steaks. Now we do steaks, and, you know, we're just trying to do things different. Doing things different for the first time since opening in 1932. And back in Louisiana, Tony's wheels are spinning in the same way. Not only is he discouraging younger generations from getting into the fishing business, at the age of 60, he's thinking of making a change himself. About a year ago, Tony met Twyla Cheatwood Harrington. She was working as a marine fisheries agent, developing programs to help sustain fishing communities. As an outreach coordinator in this industry, Twyla thought she was going to come up with initiatives that promoted fishing. But it was hard to do that after hearing what the fishermen had to say. I was spending a lot of time down on the docks and meeting up with fishermen and just trying to form those relationships within the communities. And the one thing that was repeated was, you know, the the prices are dropping. I can't afford to put gas in my boat. I can't afford to go out every day. You know, um, they just don't pay me enough when I get back to the dock. And at some point, you know, my job is to say, okay, how can I fix that problem? 
So she returned to the docks, this time peddling creative alternatives to supplement the diminishing income everyone was complaining about. If a business becomes um, unprofitable, then the only thing a smart businessman does is get out of it. And if your business isn't profitable, then you don't want to pass that on to your child. You don't want to pass that on to your son, and they're not going to want to pass it on to their son. So at some point, we lose the generational and the culture of South Louisiana if you lose that fishing industry. If you're struggling to sell the product, the crabs, oysters, fish, and shrimp, Twyla thought, sell the environment, the experience, instead. Lots of places glorify their surrounding ecosystem and the local industry it supports. It's called ecotourism, and Twyla says it's the largest growing sector of tourism in the U.S. So why shouldn't Louisiana cash in? The fishermen, year after year, are looking for a way to stay within the industry, to use the equipment that they already have and use the knowledge that they already have. And for me, the easiest way to bridge those two was to incorporate some sort of tourism into their already existing commercial operation. There is concern that this could be commodifying a culture, turning one community's real life into a visitor's Disneyland. And Twyla is sensitive to that worry. But she says this has already happened to Bayou Country, and now it's just about whose pockets are getting full. Well, I think for better or for worse, um, swamp people already did that for us. So, <laughs> you know, swamp people. The History Channel's hit TV show that follows Louisiana alligator hunters. The question is whether or not your, your local communities, whether or not they capitalize on that at this point. Tony and his family, they're just one example of the way the fishing communities work. I mean, these guys are all, all family down here. And it's not about pitting one fisherman against the other. I mean, you either all survive together or you all go down together. Things like swamp tours and airboat rides to feed alligators marshmallows have been around for a while. But Dr. Robert Thomas, director of the Center of Environmental Communication at Loyola University in New Orleans, says what Twyla's talking about is different. The shift that's happening now is that people who have not traditionally been in ecotourism are starting to see potential. Uh, such as commercial fishermen. Uh, it, well, they've discovered that people are really very interested in their culture and their profession, and that people will actually pay uh, a reasonable fee to go out on a shrimp boat and catch shrimp and be the crew for that fisherman. Tony sees ecotourism as a way to stay working on the water, stay connected to a place, and share the importance of it with others. His idea is to use his knowledge of the wetlands to help recreational and amateur fishermen find the best spots to drop their lines. He spent years passing visiting tourists who are wasting time in areas where Tony knows there are no fish. So he plans to purchase a fleet of kayaks, bring groups out on his boat, and deliver them directly to the prime fishing locations. He drops them off, they do their thing, and then he scoops them up again and prepares a traditional meal with what they proudly caught. It's almost like going bowling and getting a strike using bumpers. But who cares, Tony says, as long as they learn something new and walk away appreciating his way of life. And a lot of people don't even know how to eat a crab and just to show them how to peel a crab and eat a crab and enjoy a crab. And outsiders connecting to a place could be the ticket to saving it. Dr. Robert Thomas says the first thing you need to start restoring the environment is to make people fall in love with it. And then they'll go out and protect them. But as long as it's a place that they fear and they know nothing about and they see no, no personal attachment, don't think that they're going to stand up to try to save that land. It means nothing to them. So the logic is, the more tourists that come through and have an amazing day out on the water, the more people will want to save the wetlands. 
This outdoor adventure is brand new to them, and for Tony, who's looking up kayaks on Amazon and has never paddled one before. He's definitely someone who looks on the bright side, but as Jerry Harris said, he's honest too, and comes right out to say making this transition isn't his choice. It's not what I want to do, it's what I have to do. Switch over to some other, other business, try to get maybe into ecotourism. That's the only thing I see here for me, and still come to a place where I love to come to. It goes way back, it goes deep. So for now, it's about living, enjoying every day, enjoying family. It's clear to see Tony's good at that, appreciating the little things. Back at his house, Tony takes me out to see the family of ducks he feeds from his dock. They're growing fast. Come on, mama duck, eat a little bit. Watching the ducks gather and nibble on the bit of bread he tosses into the lake, Tony looks like an excited kid. His son Justin is watching him too. He may be too afraid to go down to St. Bernard in person, but he's not afraid to go back there in his head. People they don't, don't remember these stories like what we're sitting here telling right. you at this table. They'll never ever. They don't, most people don't even have pictures anymore because we lost those too. So the stories are just verbally. And not too many people are even going to keep telling the stories because they haunt them. That's why he and Kathy and Tony take out all the photos they do have and spread them across the kitchen counter, showing me all the old boats and houses and family reunions so that they do remember. We just don't give up. We don't stop fighting. We never quit. And we never let each other quit. Never do. Because if you quit, you're done. And we're not going to be done. All this makes me think of one of my favorite words. It's in Portuguese, saudade, and it has no direct English translation. It's more like a concept, a feeling of nostalgia, specifically for something that will never happen or be again. The emotion is mixed. You suffer with the melancholy, but the pain is almost pleasurable because thank God you can feel it all. And what you had, it was beautiful. His life looks different than he'd imagined. But Tony Katera still finds himself on a boat most days, navigating what he calls a little piece of paradise. And every person whom he shares his happy place with is another day he can have it for himself. Lane Kaplan-Levinson is a reporter based in New Orleans. Music for this episode was from Wood Spider, Blue Dot Sessions, Josh Woodward, Fork in the Blender, Pottington Bear, Corey Gray, Ignatz, and Culla. Special thanks to Travis Lux for the music selection help. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Coming up, a special announcement about what's ahead for gravy. But first... Hurricane Katrina changed so many things about southeastern Louisiana. Beyond places like St. Bernard and this story, though, one of the things Katrina changed was bread. Specifically, bread from United Bakery, which closed after the flooding from the levee failures. United Bakery was run by one of New Orleans' great baking families. It was opened in 1943 by Sal Logides' grandfather. But earlier generations had been baking bread here since his great-grandfather emigrated from Sicily in the late 1800s. At 3 o'clock in the morning when I would stay by my grandpa's house, I'd wake up, Papa, can I get some bread? And he'd, he'd give me a, a cup of coffee with mostly milk, and I'd get bread and butter and coffee. Like I was five years old. That's 67 years ago. Uh, Abraham Lincoln might have been president. I don't remember. <laughs> you can learn more of Sal's story before and after Katrina 
in a fabulous new oral history project from the Southern Foodways Alliance. It's called The Lives and Loaves of New Orleans, and it is filled with great stories of sandwiches, from Vietnamese banh mi to po' boys. You can find it on southernfoodways.org. So, a little announcement about gravy. This episode marks the end of our first season. In the coming weeks, we'll rebroadcast a favorite episode from season one and air a new story from a mystery guest producer. Season two premieres on August 27th with a special one-hour episode. Ten years after Hurricane Katrina, how has New Orleans changed? It still doesn't feel totally normal. I'm not trying to make it feel normal. Like, the abnormal feeling is my normal. Food stories from just after the storm and from today to understand New Orleans then and now. That's coming up in August. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war.